Welcome to Into the Storm Leaders, the no BS podcast that ignites leadership potential and sparks innovation in the ever-evolving business landscape we all work in. I'm Joe Jurek, your host, joined by my co-host and Culture Shock senior coach, Pete Hansberger. Together, we embark on a journey to uncover the strategies, mindsets, and actions that drive truly exceptional leadership and winning culture. Whether you're an emerging leader looking to level up in your career or an accomplished executive seeking fresh perspectives, join us as we uncover inspiring stories and thought-provoking insights from proven leaders and share practical takeaways that enable courageous leadership. Get ready to charge into the storm and become a catalyst for better workplace culture. Well, folks, welcome back to another episode of Into the Storm Leaders. Got Pete Hansberger, Joe Jurek, and we're excited today to have Jeff Cadlick, our guest. Glad to be here. Uh, from Evolution Capital Partners. Yep. I'll let him tell you about that. We're excited to uh, hear more about your journey, talk about how we got to know each other, how you first came into contact with Culture Shock, and learn from you. So, uh-oh. Uh, uh, setting the bar That's high. Tight. Exactly. Uh, now, I, I also I don't want to bring it too much lower, but we believe we learn from everything, man. Right. Okay. Hopefully, from this conversation, all of us are like, whoa, that, that was kind of a point I, I now want to Take some well, as from. I shared, I've made all the mistakes, so uh, I've got a lot to share. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to get into a couple of those. Yeah, yeah, I love, and also hear about some some triumph. No doubt, I've I've had a, a few of those for sure. So, if by some chance this is a listener's first episode, we're going to talk about into the storm being something that is this powerful metaphor that brings us all together, and some of Jeff's storms or challenges that he's faced head on. So what we mean by that is when you come across those two different paths, one of which is seemingly more comfortable, the other of which it might be painful at first or uncomfortable, but we know that it leads to a better outcome faster uh, by charging into it. So we'll dig into that as well. But I'll shut up for a minute. Jeff, tell us about you, man. Uh, Introduce yourself and whatever you want to kick things off with. Uh, Well, um, my name is Jeff Cadlick. I've um, founded Evolution almost 20 years ago. And I was working at a larger private equity fund at the time. And I kept seeing these companies that were smaller that had, I thought, had done something and deserved support, but they were really overlooked by the professional investment community. And so at the time, our managing partner was really like, let's not focus on anything under like 35 million revenue because they didn't have you know, the infrastructure of professionalization. And so when I left that firm to start Evolution, sadly, that was really the investment thesis, which was invest in what we called the capital gap. These were companies that you could tell from the valuations that there was not a lot of interest in investing in companies of this particular size. And they were generally 500,000 to 2 million or so of EBITDA or operating profit. And these businesses had been around for a while, uh, but hadn't really had that success that you would expect after 10 or 15 or 20 years. And, and so really, when we started Evolution, it was really looking at businesses of that size. And then once we got into these companies, we realized that we were confronting the same challenges over and over and over again. And it was really around, you know, financial reporting, you know, measuring data, you know, collecting data and getting organized reports in front of of decision makers when they were making the decision. 
It was really around budgeting, forecasting, you know, really thinking about the future. Don't sit and focus in on the now all the time. It was HR. It was getting the right people and the right seats. And it was really sales and marketing. The founder was the, the lead salesperson, right. but they were just doing it through gut and enthusiasm. There wasn't really an organized approach and it wasn't really translating to other people. So because there was no framework to help these people understand what are the selling points and right. do we actually have a CRM system and do we have a pipeline? So those are all the things that we do today. So it's really kind of venture capital support for private equity businesses. And we really focus on founders who want to stick around, uh, but we bring in a professional president or CEO. The founder's always going to be the founder, mm -hmm. but you know people are good at certain things. And you've gotten it to this point for a reason and didn't get it beyond. And so that's really the conversation that you're having with these founders is, look, we think this business has a lot of potential, but you have to get in the seat that's best for you. Yeah. You're always the founder, but your responsibilities might change. So that's worked well for us. What worked less well, uh, and but we had some of our bi bi biggest successes this way, was where the founder was continuing on and we tried to transition the founder to CEO, professional CEO. Okay. And 80% of the time it doesn't work because the reason that they're still where they are after 20 years is because they weren't the type of executive to take it from a million of EBITDA or operating profit to five or 10. Doesn't make them a bad person. It just takes a different skill set. No and doubt. most of the people that are founders are Salespeople, natural salespeople that have been, um, they're just gregarious and have a great idea right. and they outwork, or an engineer, you know, somebody that you know is able to change uh, physical asset and make it better, mm -hmm. and um, that they didn't go to MBA school, right? So they don't know or appreciate accounting or budgeting. They don't right. understand or care about CRM systems. They only invest in things that generate revenue. They don't really view or think there's an ROI around a controller or an operations person or, you know, something in the back office. But if you're going to professionalize, there that is a part of what has to happen uh, during sure. the process. So getting back to evolution, you know, we developed this, this playbook, really, this professionalization now that we call Evolution Pro because evolution is this living laboratory uh, called a private equity fund sure. where we we take our best stuff, if you will, and put it into our methodology. And that's what we use to level up the businesses that, that we invest in. And yeah, as you guys know, business is hard. Private equity is hard. And sometimes we have enormous successes and sometimes we have you know complete failures. But on average, um, we've done well enough that we're still here after 20 years. Yeah. I imagine that approach raised some eyebrows too at the time when, you know, I, I, did you have anybody questioning that, that decision to go out on your own and to invest in some of those smaller uh, organizations versus play in the same atmosphere that, that you were playing in before that? Yeah. And, and the reason is, is that working with small businesses, making small investments, there's less economics in it. 
Sure. As the investment professional, you know, if I'm managing a billion dollar fund and I make a hundred million dollar investment, get it to two hundred million dollars. Well, I've cr- created right. million dollars profit. Whereas if I have a thirty million dollar fund and and you know I get it to ninety million, well, I've created sixty. I've done three times my right. money, but I've only created sixty million dollars of, of profit. Sure. Yeah. And it's much more intensive. I mean, private equity historically is you know, governance, M and A, capitalization. They're not doing foundational things like we are. You know, to your point, and mm-hmm. so. The model is is hard. I mean, you have to have a passion for working with founders and really working, you know, elbow to elbow with these teams because, you know, you're not making huge bets. You're hoping to really get four, five, six, seven times your money to generate the kind of incentive compensation that private equity professionals uh, hold near and dear. Yeah, right. That's that carried interest. Um, is is really you don't make a ton of money in private equity unless you are successful and the carried interest is very very valuable there's there's a lot a lot there to unpack i think <laughs> that that's that's the stage for the whole whole episode yeah. uh, and it, surely we'll ask some other things too but boy the thought process of going from whale hunting uh, or the you know higher dollar more typical standard of private equity to those with Higher risk, higher reward. You know, five x, seven x sort of potential. There's a need there, right? There I think that's something you can't ignore. Is a, a lot of those founders, I imagine, even if it's not as right in their face that they have that need, uh, it, it's probably not as often, often uh, offered. Right, it's not there, as common. For them yeah, there's that. a lot to unpack in what you just said uh, <laughs> there because. You know, for me, I've often wondered why we don't attract more venture capital investors. Yeah. Uh, because I feel like we're venture capital without the zeros. Now, I've had a zero, but, uh, you know, venture is like you have, you know, 10 investments, you know, one or two, you get 10 times your money, and then everything else is is a zero. Sure. You've admittedly have volatility in our returns. If you're an investor in the fund, you're going to be okay. But we have a lot of co-investors that, you know, invest in that deal and their exposure to evolution is re- and experience is really through that one deal. So we obviously try very hard on every deal, but if everybody's an investor in the fund, I might say, wow, um, I can create $4 million of value here over the next four years or $40 million of value over here for the next four years. Where am I going to spend my time? Right. Over here. Well, I'm going to get rid of that, which is really what VC does, is they just start writing off and focus on you know, the winner and build momentum. And all of private equity or portfolio management theory is around that. But um, you know, we do that same thing. Uh, if we everybody is a fund investor, but we've got 75 investors, some are in the fund and some just co-invest. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so that's, that's one of them. Um, you know, I think that, that, um, our style of investing is exciting. It is needed. Uh, there is a, um, uh, you know, a economic development aspect you know, to what we do, right. we do measure job creation. That's important to That's us. Cool. We really view that um, 
business owners, entrepreneurs are really uh, cornerstones of a community, right? Because a job is more than a job. It creates structure in your life. I mean, if you know anybody that's really, really rich that doesn't work anymore, sometimes they fly off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> anybody that's unemployed, you know, can fly off the rails. So job creators, entrepreneurs, founders, they create jobs, they create structure in a community. They can do a lot of good if they're good at their job. They can level people up. They can give them extra training. They put food on the table. You know, they uh, make people, you know, develop confidence. And if you're going to be in space that we're in, those kind of things have to be important to you. Right. You know, because you're not going to, you know, get loaded on one deal. You'll do fine in a fund and you'll do really well over a series of funds, but you got to have a passion for what we do. We talk about this all the time that that's a value we we hope or wish that every leader, every founder had. And I think many do. You give the positive like benefit of the doubt there, but some of those hard decisions you have to make about layover or layoffs and uh you know, when there's job elimination, when there are just difficult things within the business, realizing like the livelihood and well being of so many people, this not just the workforce, but the community that surrounds it. And that's been one of the coolest things through this podcast that we've gotten to hear from some of these different founders and entrepreneurs is how, like one in particular, when we were talking with uh, Accutech about how they feel so grateful to the community that helped them grow that they're looking for ways to reinvest and put back into that community to say thank you and keeping it mm -hmm. at a local. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about kind of with Evolution Capital Partners, where where do you find most of that focus? It, you're based in Cleveland, mm -hmm. right? Yep. You from here? I know. Uh, no, I'm not from here. Where? I moved here in 2000. Okay. From where? Uh, my dad worked for U.S. Steel, and so he got uh, transferred uh, every 18 months growing up. And so a survival skill for me was learning, meeting new people and, and engaging, and that's... Uh, I didn't realize at the time, but it was a training ground for what helped me out probably most in business, which was meeting people right. and being able to talk to anybody. My kids laugh at me who all grew up in Cleveland. They didn't move around like I did. Right. And they're like, how do you talk to anybody about anything? And she's like, I learned it. Right. You know, yeah. uh, you didn't realize it, as I said, when you're doing it, but yeah, you learn. But you said something really interesting before about you know, people giving back, um, it's easy to do when things are going well, uh. right? When things aren't going well, that's into the storm. That is where it gets hard, right? Right, Because oftentimes that requires personal and financial sacrifice on the part of the founder if they're going to make that decision. And once you make that decision, the bigger decision is... When does it stop? How long can you give? Yeah. How long? I mean, it's time and money, right? But how long? When do these people, whoever they might be, have taken enough and I've got to stop because, you know, I'm going to go down. Right. You know, um, at some point, so you're not going to be able to continue supporting, continue helping in those some ways. At some point, performance has to, to be there, right? Yeah. And so that is 
the challenge that a lot of founders have is, and that's why you need a board of advisors. That's why you need core values because that guides you at a very high level about your decision-making process. And I've been very fortunate to be surrounded by a lot of people that are willing and able to be very frank with me. And that's helped me out about some of the decisions that that I've made. And I think they enjoy being my advisor because I listen. I, I respond to, you know, what they, what they say, but again, everybody in their career will go through tough times. And it's like, when you, what do you do? Mm -hmm. Are you going to be ruthless? Are you going to be compassionate? Do you have empathy? Yeah. You know, all those things that, you know, we're talking about pre-show about, you know, being vulnerable, you know, um, I've been, Mr. Tough Guy my whole life because I always lifted weights as an athlete and blah, blah, blah. I've cried in meetings, you know. Um, you know this is, business is a passionate thing as I ever experienced in sports because it's real lives, right? It's real paychecks. It's real founders have this vision of what they're supposed to be in the future. And when you have to, is empathy, empathetic as you can be, explain to them that that's not real. Right. That you're not, you know, I've watched you for two years. I've tried to help you. <laughs> you're just not going to get there. That doesn't make you a bad person, but right. taking away uh, somebody's vision of themselves, not taking away, but uh, trying to really help them self-reflect on yeah. who they are and really what their potential is, is this tough business. I was like filling in some of the blind spots every once in a while too. Yeah. People that have these grand visions of, you know, I'm going to hit it big with this, or this idea is so brilliant that it cannot fail. And what you were saying, not to get off topic, reminded me a little bit of the beginning of the pandemic. A lot of our clients are small to mid-sized businesses, and we had some choices early on, and we were impacted as well, being at the time almost entirely a live event, live meeting business. And I remember going and talking to Ron, our founder, and going to all of our clients and saying, look, we're going to help you out in the short term. Like, let us know what you need. We'll do sessions virtually. We'll do things, you know, at no cost in some cases if you need it, because we want to help you figure out how to stay in business and, and how to do this. And of course, that had to come to an end at some point, the, you know, the, the no fee sessions. But just that act of generosity on our end, you know, and it kept us busy as well. And in strengthened relationships and connections that ended up probably helping us three or fourfold. Uh, just good things coming back to us because we were trying to be there for clients in the short term. Did you experience any of that? Yeah, early I mean, 2020? you know, it's funny. I mean, when I think about a lot of situations, I think about time, right? Is it short, yep. medium, you know, long term? In the short term, it's easy to be giving. It's easy right. to have empathy. And March of 2020, you're like, I'll give you my sh shirt off my back and you can have <laughs> right. it. Keep it. It's all yours, right? Fast forward. And then end of 20. <laughs> You know, you're like, ah, I don't know, you know, and then end of 21, you're just like, no, I, I'm, I'm like done. I'm like completely <laughs> right. spent. And, and so you can see the best or the worst. It is the divider, really tough times. Right. You know, Warren Buffett said when the, you know, the tide goes out, you can see who's wearing a bathing suit or whatever that quote was, <laughs> right. but it's also, you, you start to see character. You find out more about yourself and others during right. prolonged crisis. Exactly. For sure. And right. You hit on it being often people's self-awareness, lack thereof, or just image perception of themselves. You find values are aspirational mm -hmm. instead of yeah. real. 
right? Yeah. And that's something like I feel very grateful for some of the the discipline, the process, the systems that, that Pete and the team here have showed me with EOS around how, how do we get just unapologetically honest about what a company's core values truly are, who embodies them, that even absent the leadership team, they step back, they know this is who we are. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's tested through some of the times like that. And right. like, we're going to open this up more. And I, I'm just curious whether we're recording or not about some of the things no. uh, with Evolution talking. Capital, yeah. you know, like, and because I'm sure you've had just some, some highs, some lows with the winds of different clients you've worked with and what you've learned from that. Before we go too far down that road, and I promise we will come back to it. When you talked about 20 years ago, so that's no short stint. You, you started Evolution 20 years ago. You've probably learned a whole hell of a lot since then. Was that, let, let's talk about that time before. Like you mentioned being at a firm. Was this your first leap into kind of an entrepreneurial space? Had you done anything like that in the past? Or do you recall what that push was for you to kind of take the chance, stand something up on your own and say, eh, I, rather than do it for or with somebody else, I, I want to build it. Like, talk to me a little bit about your entrepreneurial background. Um, so it's, it's funny you bring that up because um, I went to Miami University, I'm very involved down in Oxford, yep. and, uh, very proud alum. Uh, I wear it on my sleeve uh, all the time. Um, and I'm now the, the chairman of the Entrepreneurship School Advisory Board. I took the first or maybe the second, I can't remember, uh, entrepreneurship class that was taught by John Altman, who was this very successful entrepreneur and who this, the Entrepreneurship Institute is named after sure. uh, today. And we developed a friendship in the early part of my career, and he was just an inspiring guy. And I don't know if it's because I moved a bunch growing up or it was him or a combination of a lot of different things, but... Um, I think unknown to me, it was in, it resided in me that I had to go try to do something. I don't think I was aware of it at the time. Uh, but even when I started my career, some of my early su successes were, let's look at this in a different way, right? Mm. They call that corporate entrepreneurship. I'm in a corporate environment and they're like, let's, let's put this on its head and look at it from this way. Sure. And I would have, you know, success doing that. And then that brought me to another place because what makes entrepreneurship in education so important and 4,000 kids a year take at least one class in my university around entrepreneurship is because it teaches you to deal with not having all the information, it teaches you to deal with the unknowns, it teaches you to deal with the resource constrained environment. And we know that's what life is like. Right. But a kid growing up, their parents protect them even more so today than they used to in terms of what the real world is like. And then when you take an exam, all the things you need to know to get a hundred percent are on that piece of paper. Right. That's not the, it's in the literature. The real world works. Yep. And so I think more and more kids are realizing that, you know, I got to learn this stuff, whether you're a nursing student, you know, you're an engineer, you're in fashion design, these students are taking entrepreneurship. So um, when I finally got into in private equity in call it 2000 full time, um, I just watched and I was just kind of learning. I had really done everything there was to do at a very early part of my career 
because I was in great organizations with great mentors and I got a lot of at-bats. I mean, they had a lot of deal flow, so I could see a lot of stuff, right? And so by the time I got to this place, uh, I really started to have a good handle on what made makes sense to me as it relates to how a company should should work and um so i eventually just said you know what i i've got to go do this on my own and i really believe when people go through transitions you're running to something or running from something and i was definitely running to something but the things that were going on in the organization that doesn't exist anymore uh accelerated that that transition sure. before I was ready. And so when I started Evolution, I went without a paycheck for 15 months. I mean, it was really, wow. I mean, of course, I waited to have the nice house. I waited to have four kids. I waited to have things <laughs> that cost money right. before I made this really great decision to <laughs> totally risk it all and start something <laughs> on my own. Uh, but you know, again, that's my wife stepped in. She started painting paintings and selling them on eBay, and you know, she paid the mortgage. And no kidding. Oh yeah, she was my my. Uh, that was some early I, eBay days too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. This is back in two thousand and five. Um, so she had that entrepreneurial yeah, mindset she's more too, of an right? Entrepreneur than I am. I mean, <laughs> you know, I have some like ground rules now. Where it's like she's just like she'll start anything from anything, and. Uh, She's been successful and she's been really, really good at it, but she definitely helped us, you know, through that transition. Um, but I guess I would say, uh, entrepreneurs are a little bit, uh, mavericky, you know, that, that we're control investors because unless we had, you know, a legal right to make certain decisions, um, you know, these entrepreneurs are hard to lasso and wrestle to the graph. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, you guys see it every day with what you guys do here at right. Culture Shock, but. And we yeah. get lassoed internally too. Oh, yeah. no doubt. For, for the best reasons. Yeah. You know, yeah. when it's needed. That, but you, know, you made up a, a point earlier about, you know, um, about self reflecting. I mean, having that conversation over a period of, a series of meetings or a series of weeks and months and years is a much easier conversation than right now. To try to take a year's worth of therapy and bring it into an hour conversation <laughs> is really, really difficult no to doubt. do. But that happens. You know, you can't control time. You know, again, getting back to time, can't control time. And there could be a reason where, okay, this person is not going to receive this information very well. So I need to kind of explain our thought process right. and readjust how they viewed themselves in their world. And most of the time they reject it, right? But they'll come around eventually and say, okay, uh, maybe some of what you said is is true, right? Right. Now you're not saying, hey, you're a bad person. You're saying, you know what? Maybe sales isn't your thing, right? Or you know, right. maybe you should get out of the accounting department. <laughs> well, yeah. some of that it takes time because they're not ready to hear that feedback until you've built a little bit of a relationship. And right. then over time, as you, you know, as you start to earn their trust, they're willing to hear that better than they, they were on day one. Well, you, you talked about, you know, into the storm, right? And so into the storm for me and without getting specifics because confidentiality agreements and just, you know, uh, people in general, tr transitioning people is the hardest thing that, that we do. 
right? I mean, whether you're, you're firing somebody, hiring somebody, uh, you, you know, buying somebody out for a price less than they feel like they deserve. Mm. I mean, those are all really tough things. And what I always tell our leaders is everybody's watching. Good times, are you congratulating people? Right. Bad times, are you maintaining control and not yelling and screaming? Are you allowing this bad employee, but value, well, valued employee that's a, that's kind of a little loose and goose around the rules, are you going to reel them in? And that requires energy, right? It's like grounding your kids. Look out. I have to ground my kid, which means I actually have to pay attention. I have to get up off the ground from watching the football game right. and go make sure they're in their room. You know, I mean, it right. just requires, you know. And withstand energy. the negative energy you might be getting yeah. back from them in yeah. the moment. But also, when particularly when you're firing somebody, uh, I hate doing it, but it's, it's a must. And you're at a high level of risk when you go into those meetings that they're going to sue for whatever reason. You could be perfect, but you know, they're so I've made it, even though I hate it, I think everybody hates it, should hate it. Otherwise you're kind of weirdo. Uh is that <laughs> uh you have to be at the most um when you are most at risk as an organization, you have to step in. If we're if we are at the most at risk during those transition periods, I have to be there. I don't want to be the pointed spear. I'm not an ego guy that way. I've done it enough that it's just not great for me. Um, but you have to step in to that breach. And so you said something earlier that caught my attention, which is if we've got a company out of state somewhere. And we're not getting along with the founder. And uh-huh. the founder's, you know, marching around the office saying, big bad private equity fund, you know, that Jeff guy, he's a real jerk. The people in that office, who do you think they're gonna listen to? They listen to the founder. Person is there. Right. Yeah. That's the version of their truth, right? right? I am the big bad private equity fund coming in town and making changes and yeah, you know, everybody's at risk and you know, they're listening to this person. So the only way to deal with that, as we talk, you know, as a team, is every time we go, we're professional, we're on time, we're prepared, we treat everybody with respect. You dot all I's and cross all T's, and eventually, over time, people will realize that, okay, what he's saying doesn't make sense, right? Sure. And, you know, these people at Evolution, you know, really seem to be pros. You're credible. You've built trust through right. your actions. Like, them, for example, right? don't go on a meeting and say, you know, that founder, I don't know, he's, you know, never say. Right. No Participate in that. Never, those games. ever. Just focus on being a professional and, you know, uh, it'll work out. It'll work out. It, it does start to build influence of those around you even in limited interactions right hearts and minds is yeah what i say we got to go out and win the hearts and minds because it happens i mean yeah. you know we have fiduciary responsibility to our investors and you know there's a lot that goes into a decision to change people out or make a transition and you know my ultimate boss is well our core values as an organization the law but our investors right 
And so when I make transitions, some part of my reasoning when I share with people is like, I'm a fiduciary. I like you personally, but I have to act. Yeah. My investors expect me to act. As a fiduciary, I have to act. And they start to get it a little bit when you separate the two, which is like, yeah, let's, let's, I'd love to have a beer with you, but it's not working out. Yeah, yeah. And if I've got months and months and months to work with somebody, you're kind of layering in, hey, um, you know, we talked about this a couple months ago and it hasn't really changed. So let, let me help you out and, you know, uh, let's reconvene in another month. By the time, if you've done your job, by the time you've fired somebody, they know it's coming. I mean, it makes it so much easier right. on both sides. There's been clear expectations. Right. There's but check-ins. If, if you go in there and you're fired and they, they're surprised, it's your fault. It's my fault. Yeah. Right? But sometimes that happens. Or somebody, somebody acts out, you know, you, I mean, if you've been in business long enough, you've dealt with a lot of weird situations. Right. Sometimes you have to act with urgency. Right. Mm -hmm. Like within an hour out the door. Uh, but you know, if you can give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, work particularly if they, if they want to do it, there's a lot of people that are just kind of going through the motions, but the tough ones are when they're really trying and they're just not getting it. You know, that you, you hit on, boy, we, we didn't queue you up for this. I didn't think, don't think prior to today, I shared much about kind of like, our, our program for emerging leaders and things, but there's something called path to positive accountability. And so often people jump straight to the accountability conversation where it's like, oh, go hold somebody accountable, go correct this. You need to have urgency. And maybe they hesitate or hold back knowing that they own a piece of this, but now because they've worn kid gloves or not been direct and upfront about it, when push does come to shove and action needs to happen, this person's going to be like, what are you talking about? Why didn't you tell me? Right. And the, the first step of this thing that we called the into the storm conversation is prepare your heart and mind to impact hearts and minds. Remember that we're meant to serve, not to please. And as a fiduciary, it's, it's a little more clearly inherited as a responsibility, but it's a responsibility of every leader. Mm -hmm. And, for me, that, that was one of the things personally I, I didn't recognize in my early leadership career. And uh, we, we talk about Radical Candor by Kim Scott. I fell in the ruinous empathy quadrant where although I would build trust with my team and had high engagement and things, I wasn't great at embracing conflict. I'd look the other way or pull punches. And I think all leaders need to have that recognition, like getting their heart and mind ready for these conversations is this isn't because, you know, I'm a jerk. It's not because I'm, I'm doing something to you. It's recognition that I'm doing something for you. We're mm -hmm. for others involved here. And it's my responsibility to speak up. It's so much easier said than done. Mm -hmm. Right. And that I can relate to the crisis of, you know, you have a plan, but in difficult, intense moments, it's, it's much hard harder. to follow through. Right. So uh, we, we, talk about it often to keep it alive. We try to, I think we resort to our training. We resort to our tools in those moments. Uh, anything that you've found help you throughout your career? I'm sure today you're, you know, it, it's kind of so automatic, you know, it like the back of your hand and you, you remember those triggers to get your heart and mind ready and things. But 
when you first got into private equity, first started recognizing that a huge part of your role is helping people see things from an angle they might not want to see from and that you are serving them even if it doesn't please them. Is there anything that you do uh, to like mentally prepare or uh, a model or that you try to follow or just something that might help others who shy away from or don't as regularly come into those like really intense, difficult conversations? So uh, I, I will say EOS was, was really great uh, in middle part of my career uh, because of the system, right? I mean, even Gino's like these particular things I stole from other people, but he put them together in a really elegant way. Right. And I'd say to people, this is like a mini MBA, you know, it, in, a, in a book, a 210 page book, as I recall. It's just, it's really, really great. Um, I would say a few things. One, and I don't have a system. My, I guess my fallback is I work harder than probably anybody I know. Now, I'm not saying I work uh, I shouldn't say harder, but I work as hard as anybody I know. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that I'm the smartest person in the room, but I spend more time thinking deeply about a subject than anybody else in that room. And so I rarely go into a meeting anymore where I haven't thought pretty hard about whatever we're going to talk about. Yeah. And so um, that also goes back to your, your acceptance that um, tension needs to be there if you're going to grow as a professional. There's that, you know, analogy or phrase where the turtle can only advance if they stick their neck out of their shell. Right. It's, it's that it's, you got to be out there and be vulnerable and be uncomfortable. And so I say to people, look, tension is good. Anxiety is bad. And so you just need to find... Mm you know, where you are, you know, in that spectrum. There's a few times where I got out to anxiety, <laughs> either intentionally because I was pushing myself or unintentionally where a lot of stuff got on my plate at once. And, you know, when it, it's at night and you're tired, you're at mo your most vulnerable and you start thinking about everything is going to go against you and not one thing is going to go with you. Right. And that's <laughs> right. never the case. And but the more deeply you think about something, the better the solution yeah. you know, that you're going to come up with. So when I talk to young people at Miami University or anywhere else, I say my um, my desire to work hard, my ability to work hard is 75 percent of my success. And if you control 75 percent of your future right? You can control how successful you are, but you have to put in the time. I mean, there's no very successful, well-rounded person that said, yeah, I didn't, I didn't work hard. Right. They always say that. And so if you're willing to do that hard work and you can define it every, any way you want, <laughs> yeah, I have my own definitions, but you know, you, you will, you will control your future. You'll control the level of success that you want. But, you know, some people call me a workaholic and getting work-life balance is important, but everybody has, there's a spectrum, right? right. Hey, I don't need to go to Hawaii and I want to work 35 hours a week and feel no stress. Or, hey, 
I want to travel around the world once a year and I need to make a ton of money to live mm -hmm. the lifestyle I want and I need to go, go, go. There's a spectrum in there that you need to figure out yes. your happiest, right? And sometimes, you know, you life pulls you in one of those directions, sure. right? Um, there's been points in my life where I haven't been as busy as I'd like to be and I feel like I'm falling behind and now I'm like, oh my gosh, I would love to have a day where I didn't get an email. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't happen, right? right. So uh, those are two extreme examples, but, you know, that that is um, what I would say to people. It's just I get up at 4.30 on Mondays and I'm excited to get up because I have three hours to just quiet time, to think, and then Tuesdays at 5.00. Wednesday at five thirty, six six thirty. It's like that's my week. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. Um, I'm curious too the relationship between tension and anxiety. You mentioned um, it, it reminded me of that feeling right before you go out onto the field or go out onto the court playing a, an athletic event. And when we get you know a keynote session or we have you know a high stakes training opportunity that we're going to get involved in. I get that feeling, that that pregame feeling where I, I, I know it's good for me and, it, and it sometimes it might feel like stress or anxiety, but but most of the time it's probably tension and it gets you excited to go about. You mentioned you know your own background in athletics and exercise, things like that. Can you get into any of that? And has that shaped your career at all or your your uh, excitement to sort of get up for the big, uh, the big meeting or the, the big session? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a, a few examples. Um, you know, I was the last kid to go through puberty, I think, in my entire middle school uh, <laughs> long ago. And, uh, yeah, I was bullied. You know, it's just it's middle school, right? And so I started lifting weights and exercising. And it got to the point by the end of high school, you know, nobody was messing with me. I wasn't a bully, but no one was going to mess with me either. And um, that really just started this does uh, need to work out. And to me now working out is as mental stress relief as it is anything else. Like my wife and I get in an argument. She's like, just go. Run. She's, like, <laughs> right, she's right. And I right. come back and everything's great. You got well, a clear head. Yeah. Right. And so um, it's great to stay physically healthy. I think that if you're going to put in the long hours that you have to, to be successful today, then being physically fit, uh, you know, is important. Uh, I think for the stress level, I think uh, whether it's swimming, running, biking, walking, whatever, just you got to find time to eliminate that stress. I mean, for me, it's reading and it's it's being physically active, being out, you know, doing things. Those are the two things that when the world is going nuts, if I do those two things, I'll be able to, you know, find my my point north, so to speak, using a compass analogy. Um, so those, you know, those things are kind of become core, you know, to, to who, who I am as a person, you talk about getting up for, you know, the big event, um, you know, public speaking has not always been, I always got something to say, of course, but it's, it, there is a journey in there. Like you don't want sure. to start your first, uh, big meeting or big presentation doing the state of the union, right? You want to. You know, take your little, and so I see a lot of young people complain about, well, I've got this small territory, I've got this mm. small job. Like, that's what you want. Yeah. They're not expecting anything out of you. So go to the smallest territory, go to the smallest client, 
make something happen. Right, go over practice. And if, if you screw it up, nobody's going to notice because the expectations <laughs> right. are nothing. Yeah. Right? And same thing you do with public speaking. It's like just, you know, go speak to this handful of kids at Miami University. They, you could be saying completely off the wall stuff and they have no clue. Right? <laughs> right. Uh, but you, it's a journey to build yourself up to the point where you can be the keynote speaker. You can lead that meeting, you know, that sort of stuff. So, you know, I say to young people, your career is a marathon, not a sprint. Right. And, and there's times that I sprinted and got way over my skis and that's where the anxiety piece comes in. You just got to understand, you know, where you are in your profession and what you think you're capable of, but God forbid your first big meeting is, you know, um, or your first meeting is the big one. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's about reps, it's about practice and it's about, you know, you're going to make mistakes and just move past that and learn from it and figure out, you know, what settles you down and hopefully it's healthy stuff and it's not, you know, yeah. alcohol and drugs, right. whatever the case may be. And I think we all know from talking to founders and entrepreneurs, there is an element, you know, of that in this culture that you have to be aware of or see signs of and the people that you, you work with. Right. I mean, yeah, the work about, hard, play hard can yeah. get, get out of control. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. get on these roller coasters. Everybody that's around me for a second knows that I'm like torqued up on caffeine and you're not going to come off that caffeine before midnight. I can tell you that unless right. you have a beer or two or three or whatever. And so getting off that train is is a constant struggle, mm -hmm. right? It's like, can I get to bed early so I can get a good night's sleep so I need to have caffeine? But some, of course, happens. And, you know, um, anyway, it's... They're, shortcuts have appeal, but they're off... They're, they're never going to be the long-term or sustainable right. thing, right? And I personally have experienced it quite a bit. It's that... It, either the caffeine or the the late night, the grind it out, even though I know in myself like when I'm at my best. Mm -hmm. And that process or, or practice of being more intentional, kind of mapping out where you want to be, where you want to go, what some of your long-term and short-term goals are and things like that. But also like doing a, I think we do a SWOT analysis in business all the time, but kind of like a personal SWOT analysis to own and recognize some of your strengths, but some of your weaknesses as well, but then also ask others to validate, right? right. To, to help you understand, are you self-aware or is there something where you're totally off the mark in? I think earlier in our career, we get accountability. We get lots of criticism, lots of advice from everywhere. And the more and more senior you get, the less you hear it naturally from others unless you have some sort of feedback me mechanism, unless you, you know, have that network of influence where, you know, I want you to shoot me straight. I want you to tell me if I'm effing up, right. uh, that, that I've just, you know, always a work in process net or progress, never, never finish. But some of that hit home, right? right. When you're talking about it, cause right. I, I realize uh, it's so easy uh, to, you know, it kind of the, the excitement, the, the feeling of building something and things like that to to push yourself too far where there's like a point of diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. And if you don't take care uh, of like having clarity breaks, eating right and things like that, I mean, I, I've noticed where I'm like, oh, well, that's why. Right. Uh, that's why I'm not at my 
you know, peak uh, performance right now where I'm not thinking as clearly about things. So I think that's that's a super valuable kind of like insight or, or tip for people to it, be reminded of. Because the most frustrating thing for me is when we know something and we still fail to act mm-hmm. on it. We right. need that kick in the ass sometimes that uh, how do we keep it fresh? And uh, I think that stuff will always be important. I think letting people know that you're receptive to honest criticism is really important. Um, I Again, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of advisors, and I think they have enjoyed advising me because I react you know, to what they say and they're able to say the hard stuff, you know, to me and I let them know that it's okay. You know, yeah. as long as it's coming from the right place, just tell me you can say anything if you say it the right way. And, you know, you, you get really good feedback. It's that Jahari window, you know, that yeah. they talk about in EOS and, um, you know, you have to understand how you're perceived by others uh, you know, to really get a 360 scope on h- how are you performing? You know, how, how do I maximize my performance? Um, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, I know, for example, a lot of people say I'm really nuts and I know that I am. So having that awareness, you can soften it yeah. or you can amplify it, right. you know, in the right situation. Strategically. Uh, yeah. So, but Unless somebody told me that, yeah, Jeff, you're pretty intense, I I wouldn't know that. To me, that's like totally normal, right? right. <laughs> well, it could even be perceived as a strength in every situation, right? I think the things that got us to where we are won't necessarily get us to what's next, but there's unintended consequences of some of the things that even are greatest strengths. Right. Like I, I learned that with with Colby, uh, it's kind of validating for me to see some of the things that I was. A, either ashamed of or embarrassed about, where it's like, okay, lean forward in that, but also maybe dial this Which back your four sometimes. Numbers? Which are four numbers? Which are four numbers? I'm a five, three, nine, two. Seven, three, five, two. Seven, three, five, four. Sorry, seven, three, five, four. I'm a six, right. three, seven, four. So initiating fact finder, yeah. right? You need the research, give you the book, yeah, let you no, understand I'm called, I'm called a strategist only because my, at least that's what I call myself because the other three <laughs> numbers aren't six or above. Fair. Right. Fair. But as a quick start five, I mm-hmm. do pretty well uh, you know, taking these crazy ideas and actually making them be able to go forward. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Professionalizing them a like, little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to say, too, on, on the note about, you know, the, the willingness to receive feedback and, and respond well to it. When we tell the into the storm story to any clients we work with, we talk about charging into it would be the the combination of bold and humble. And it, and there's a lot of humility in that from our standpoint. And it sounds like from what you're saying too, I mean, you could say to somebody who's giving you advice, look, I've been doing this 20 years. I don't need to hear from you. you know. And, and you're probably at the point in your career where you could say, look, I've, I've won more than I've lost when it comes to our, our business and I'm not interested in hearing additional opinions. Um, but I imagine a lot of the power and, and a lot of good information comes from having that humility because we talk about it takes a humility to get out of your comfort zone. It takes a humility to be willing to talk to people that you've never met before and ask good questions and you never know where you might learn something. And so it's almost just as important for us when we're talking about charging into the storm as not being the bull in the China shop where we're just wildly sprinting forward, but being willing to put our ego in our back pocket and 
and get feedback just like we want to be aggressive and we want to be assertive and go chase after the things that we want to solve. Um, anything else that you have on, on the, the humility note or maybe an example of, of when taking somebody's advice or feedback uh, really worked out for you? Um, so a couple comments there, and I'll get to your question in a second. Uh, fear of failure is really, you have to get comfortable with failure or something less than what you vision success to be. And as soon as you get comfortable with that, you'll grow, right? You know, you, if you did it perfect the first time, then there's nowhere else to go, right? But if you did it slightly less than you think you could do it, then you got to do it again. Mm -hmm. And so there's so many people that are afraid to fail. They just can't stomach doing the cold call. They just can't stomach, you know, doing that presentation. And you've got to figure out a way to say, it's okay. It's not existential. I'm not hurting anybody's feelings. I'm the only one that's damaged and I forgive myself. Yeah, I think that that is really important aspect, you know, of, of being able, uh, you know, to grow. The other thing about, growing and what I see in the best leaders is that the way they analyze the situation is they look at it from everybody else's perspective, <laughs> not from theirs, right? It's like, if I'm going to fire somebody, let's look at it from their side. What are they going to say? You know, what should I say sure. to make this a better, more productive you know, conversation? Um, I'm going to go into this meeting and this person is going to respond this way because I think this is how they're feeling. I heard them say something along the slides in the past and how am I going to respond to that to make it not about me, right? Right. And, and so what I see so much in life today and in business in particular is one is complete lack of accountability. And then number two is everybody looks everything from their own lens. If you could change those two things, you could probably change the world, right? Um, but so many people are doing it for themselves. And it's about me. I'm being hurt here. I'm the one yeah. that is taking the brunt. I am working harder than anybody else. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And then when somehow everybody in the out, company is working harder than everybody else in the boy, company. Right. No? And if, <laughs> if you if you solve for those two problems, all this stuff that's going on in the world today, uh, domestic and abroad, takes care of itself. Yeah. Right. right. The emotional intelligence piece that goes into that it's is really, so really huge, important. right? And, and, and in leadership, you know, in, you know, instilling that I think is would be really, really key. I want to add, you've touched on some like characteristics of leaders. Uh, we've talked a little bit about EOS. I want to dive into both of those things. But that's the second time you talked about looking at things from different angles, mm -hmm. right? And being the Colby that you shared and being the most prepared before mm -hmm. things, anticipating objections, things like that. Boy, does that resonate. There's, I'll show you when we get done with this, but I've got this cube on my desk. It looks like a typical Rubik's cube, but it also splits open. You can look at it from different sides. And there's a sentiment that stuck with me. It's cube the data. Look at it, not just from the six sides, but see if you can crack that sucker open and look at it from this angle and this angle and this angle. And it's not just the data of numbers and spreadsheets, but it's the interaction, the human component to understand how could they, how could somebody else respond to this? And surely we can't anticipate every variable in their life and the emotional state and all that. But We've seen enough, we've experienced enough to kind of draw similarities, draw uh, 
you know, kind of a, a comparison of like with a high degree of certainty, I can predict it's going to be one of these things. Knowing you could be totally wrong, mm-hmm. but boy, do I find that have I found that to be helpful. And I think that that's something, again, if we can find ways in the moment to remember those things instead of getting exposed to something and then life happens and we kind of f- fall back to our normal habits and tendencies, it can be really helpful. That's why I've got the token. That's why I've got right. the little thing on my desk. So that, that way I remember, look at this to consider my purview is only my purview, right? So I'll give you a couple of comments of that. Um, one thing that we teach our companies, our founders is don't look at an expense as an expense. Look at it as return on investment. That's a 360 view. Like what is your expectation for what you're getting for expending the capital? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, rent, I'm paying five or $10,000 a month. What, what am I going to get? What am I getting back on that? Is this really what I wanted or could it have been better? Mm-hmm. I admit developing ROI on office supplies is not easy, uh, but certainly on people, right? Certainly on equipment, technology, you know, and you need to understand how you're measuring it because then that that is a 360 view of rather than just saying an expense. Sure. Right. You don't spend money to get nothing. Right. You spend money to get something. <laughs> right. right. So maybe office supplies is one to one, but if I hire a salesperson, I want them to generate for every dollar of expense, I want them to generate three dollars of gross profit. Right. If they can't do that within a you know a period of time then you know, you got to move on. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. the, your second point about point in time, the other thing that we teach companies is you have to do the discipline the whole time. So when you're at that point, you're ready, right? So companies generate a treasure trove of data every day and 99% entrepreneurs just throw it away. Right, they're not paying attention to it. They got it all up here. It's all gut, <laughs> right? And when people go to Vegas with gut, you know they don't last very long, right? Right. And but you know if you are educating yourself with the information that your company generates every day, mm-hmm. when you come time to make that big decision, you're not going to have all the information, right? You're going to have maybe fifty percent of it, but. If you're reviewing this data that your company is generating and know what has ultimately happened, you're going to make an educated guess. It's going to be a really good one, right? So don't wait for that moment. Start doing the things now because eventually you're going to need it. I don't know when. I don't know if it's going to pay off, but it's not going to be a negative, right? So just do it. And more often than not, there's a great ROI around preparation to lead up to that event. And if you talk to very successful entrepreneurs, they're gonna say, I didn't have all the answers, but I'm pretty sure I knew it was gonna happen yeah. because I've been looking at this data forever, right? And it was just, I had it. Jeff, I'm, I'm sure a lot of this is boots on the ground experience, living it, going through failures, learning, getting better, the entrepreneurship being one of the, not only uh, down at Miami University, giving back and I'm sure, surely learning through that aspect of it, but also being one of the first classes. We talk about peak leadership. We talk about the characteristics we strive to emulate. 
outside of those things, like clearly the, this, the discussion that we're having today, while yes, the, there's some emphasis on uh, the sort of work that you do. And so outside of those things, are there individuals that you're fortunate enough to work for at an early stage in your career or even adversity? When you think about who you strive to emulate and how you've gained a lot of who you are as a leader, where does it come from? What's peak leadership to you? Or like what, what peak leadership experiences have you had uh, that come to mind? As I said, I, I was very fortunate early in my career to have people that really looking out for me. Um, the, the person that comes to mind um, is a guy named Hal Stebbin. He's retired and um, I have not kept up with him uh, after a period of time, but he knew what I was before I did in terms of, you know, I was a guy that was going to develop business and generate opportunities. And when I got to Chicago to work for LaSalle Bank, which doesn't exist anymore, um, you know, LaSalle didn't give you a territory or they didn't give you uh, customers. They just said, go out and you build your own. I didn't know anybody mm. in Chicago. Certainly nobody of importance, right? And you would go into the CRM system or whatever it was called at the time, and everybody had staked their claim on all these really, really important people. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, but he let me just uh, explore about you know who I I could be, knowing that I was going to come to him when there was a decision you know, to be made. And so, as I'm processing uh, response to your question, it was really as a leader, allowing people to uh, explore uh, and grow, understanding that they're going to make a mistake and that you may have to go in and save their ass. Uh, but there's a certain trust level that you know they're going to come back to you. But allowing them to try and fail and grow is an important part of my experience and how let me do that. I mean, I ended up calling on banks in Ohio where I had graduated from Miami and some of my buddies had gotten into banking and LaSalle was Chicago Metro Bank. And I started thinking, wow, there's a lot of banks in Cleveland and Columbus and Cincinnati. I'm sure they're competing and they don't want to share a credit. Um, so I would go to a bank in Columbus, Ohio and say, hey, do you have any bank loans that you don't, you don't want, you're holding more than you want to, mm. you want to sell it down. Yeah. And the first deal I did was with, I think it was Bank One, uh, and it was Longer Burger Baskets. It was a company that makes- My mom used to houses. sell those. Kind of yeah. Like Tupperware. Yeah. Don't right. they have the big basket yeah. at the corporate right. office? I financed that. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, uh, so that's, and so I hustled as soon as I, you know, I hustled and, you know, my friends were hitting a happy hour in Chicago and I was exploring this idea that I had and how let me do it. I mean, I was 25, right. Yeah. And he was letting me get on a plane. I could have been going to the bars in Cleveland. He wouldn't, right. Known, right. But I was working this and I would report back to him. I think based on how I reported he knew that I was actually doing something. Right. Right. right? And so, um, you know, when you're, when, as my job as a leader is to really support 
as best I can, everybody that's in the organization, as long as they share the core values, and I think that they're in the right seat. And, and if, if I don't allow them to do that, you know, if I cut them off the knees, if, um, they make a decision or, you know, if I go, you know, if I go, I disagree with the decision, but it's been set up that it's their decision and it's not an existential threat. It's like, okay, let's Mm -hmm. see where this goes and maybe it'll work itself out. But there is an element of everybody is going to develop their own pace, their own skill sets, and you need to let people grow. One, to be happy, you know, two, to get better, and three, hopefully, you know, the whole organization is lifted because of that. It's really hard to do. It is. Right? It's kind of like your kids, and you're like, God, I wouldn't do that if I were you, but, you know, <laughs> right. himself. Probably going to skin your knee there. In this situation, I'm watching from over <laughs> exactly. here, so that way, exactly. when it goes the way I know it's going right. to, yeah. You're there. Well, so, both of our kids are both four and under. You know, I've got two, he's got two, and they're all four four or younger. And we're we're getting into that part of our lives right now where they're just constantly jumping off of things and yeah, running and from crawling to sprinting. Yeah. Right? And sometimes so, yeah. I'm saying, Don't do that, or I get in front of them. And sometimes I'm just like, Well, let's see if it works out for you. <laughs> you yeah. know, but you sort of the calculated risk a little bad bit. That happens to them. And let's say they get in a car. The consequences Truthfully, are sometimes very unfair. Mm-hmm. And so these little things are okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? If it just, you know, as long as it's little, you're okay. It's, it's going to be okay. We're going to be fine. It went horribly. <laughs> but here's how I would do it differently. And you can do this. Right. right. That cycle of making sure that people aren't afraid to fail, right, is is... That's that's very hard to do. And how let me do that? You probably earned it through some demonstration of wanting it, of hustle, right? I think that people naturally will give more energy to let things fail, to you know share wisdom and things when they can tell somebody's going to listen, do something yep. with it, right? There, that recurring theme keeps coming up. So many people delegate ineffectively but don't own it, don't take accountability for you know, their part to play and become jaded and cynical. And then they're sealing. Right, right. right. Most down. people delegate because they don't do the work. The way to go about it is I'm delegating it to you because I want you to grow as a professional. Mm. That's the reason to do it. I can do it better than you, right? Because I've done it a thousand times, but I want you to do it. Not necessarily because I don't want to do it, but you need to know how to do this and well, yeah, right? And if you never do that, if you skip this step because you don't like it, you're going to be worse off in the long run. Have you been surprised by the outcome when somebody came back and even though you knew how to do it better from trial and error, they had a different totally point yeah. of view or a way that innovated? Yeah, I'm a big like... believer in unique abilities. And, you know, I, I, I tend to be a little bit more the jack of all trades, king of none kind of person. Mm-hmm. And... But oftentimes better than a master of one is that last part, right? <laughs> yeah. That always gets left yeah. off. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, I am often, if people appreciate why you're doing it, the right people will come back with better answer. You know, if they look at, oh, just, just like sloughing work off on me because he doesn't want to do it and blah, blah, blah. But if they understand and appreciate that this is a learning moment and they could fail 
Um, but you have to do this. And if you don't do it, you know, you're skipping steps in the process is going to make you an exceptional, uh, professional. Um, those are the people that you want to have around you. Yeah. Right. That mentality seems to work with, you know, on, on the flip side too, when someone's heart truly is in the right place, whether it's a, we work a lot, entrepreneur or a mid manager, emerging leader, they'll say, I don't want to give away this work because I feel guilty. Like, I don't want to make someone else do the work that I should be doing. In which case, it seems like the mentality also works in that that regard too, where, where it's, you know, if you don't do this, you're missing out on opportunities to help other people grow. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And I'm the one that I feel badly, you know, delegating some stuff when I know I could do it twice as fast and, you know, arguably better. Uh, but it's, it, you know, they got to have to, you're, you're short sheet and say letting a kid skip a grade or graduate yeah. them to the next grade, even though they didn't successfully pass that exam, you're hurting them in the long run, mm-hmm. right? They, you have to do the work. If you don't do the work, then, you know, you're going to have gaps, right? And so, and people don't do the work because they don't want to fail the test. So I get it, but. You know, <laughs> right. you, you, you got to work. That goes back to being uncomfortable a little bit, right. you know, and grinding, right. you know, getting through that. Yeah. And unfortunately, with helicopter parents today and yeah. the lack of accountability and all these sorts of things, more and more kids are entering into the workforce that feel entitled. You know, they feel, and I, this is not a blanket statement, but, you know, I, having college age kids and kids that are out of college, I feel like I've got a, a unique view <laughs> on this part of life is that, you know, they, uh, they're they lacking in a lot of the things that are going to make you know, them successful professionals. And it's not that they don't have the talent. Mm-hmm. And it may not necessarily be that they don't want to do the work. They just don't know, Right. If you've never had to do the work, how are you supposed to know you're supposed to do it, right? right. If your parents wrote your term paper, or they you know did all this sort of stuff, then you're not going to know how to do it, right? You're not going to know how to deal with conflict, right? If if your parents sail in and and say, yeah. but you have to learn to do that stuff, ultimately, and you can practice it. The training, I'm totally for training. Mm-hmm. It makes a ton of sense, which you eventually have to do, right? Now. Right. And fortunately, hopefully, you never have to fire somebody. But likely, if you haven't fired somebody, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ooh, we often hold on to people for far too long. Yeah. It's a detriment to them. It's a detriment to us. Like That's when you were talking earlier about some of the hardest things being when you have to transition somebody. We talked a little bit about right person, right seat and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've personally had some of the best moments of a relationship after we've agreed on a mutual separation of ways, mm-hmm. uh, then finally, you know, kind of the dust settles and we can talk honestly of like, all right, let, let's find something that's really going to make you happy. Line up with your unique ability for, right. right. Have you had that as well? Yeah. Like, but a big part of the, the, the way to facilitate a conversation around transition is help them envision what the future's like, right? Yeah. Whether you're, someone's retiring, right? Part of the reason they don't retire is that whatever hobbies they have don't give them the same amount of enjoyment as as the work, yeah. right? And if somebody's in your, your organization and they're not performing and you're not happy with their performance, say, look, this is what you're really good at. 
I mean, so let's let's start to think about what what this looks like you know, for you in the future. How do we get excited about right. what's next? Exactly. And so ultimately, you know, when the tension is gone and they've moved on and presumably, you know, they're they're in a happier spot, then there's a little bit more acknowledgement of, yeah, that's probably might have needed that push. Yeah, I might have. <laughs> exactly. Right. Otherwise, I would have just yeah. continued to do it. And right. I was clearly. So if you can make it a healthy conversation and not confrontational and not say, hey, look, you're leaving because you're terrible. Yeah. It's just like, you're not good at this job, right? It doesn't mean you're not good at any job. You're just not good at this job, yeah. right? And so those kind of conversations, that's where you got to think deeply about these things and helping people. You know, transitions are hard for anybody. No doubt. And so when you've got a friend transitioning, whether they're moving to a new city, they've got, you know, death in the family or get divorced or whatever, that's when people need to dial in. That's when people need other people, you know, to provide that perspective, that comfort, you know, those those words of support. Sure. And a a transition, whether it's firing or demoting or, you know, whatever, or even promoting. Yeah. You know, you have to have those important conversations. We owe you a thank you for helping uh, somebody we care a lot about on our team transition by getting them excited about what was next. And it was a couple of years ago now, but uh, the way that I was introduced to you and that it sounds like you were introduced to Culture Shock was through Kimberly Dyer. Yes. Right? A member right. of our team. She's a right. uh, certified Colby consultant, an EOS implementer, a big part of Culture Shock. So tell us more about that. Like when, when that uh, introduction occurred, it, you already had some familiarity with EOS and it sounds like with our founder, Ron, uh, I, I'd be remiss if I skipped over that part of yeah. the story and connection. So anything that you can share there uh, about helping her? Yeah. You know, uh, Ron is great, as you guys know, and I, I knew Ron for sure at that point in time, but Kim and I, Kimberly and I met at the Nature Center at Shaker Lakes, which is a, uh, a nature center in the Heights area of, of Cleveland. And it's really about 20 acres. And the history is really cool because I'm getting off a tangent here, but it is 20 acres that were set aside by uh, the federal government. But prior to that, they were going to establish a Clark Freeway that connected 271 to 490. And it was going to be a 70 foot high overpass that went right over Shaker Heights, like mm -hmm. the nicest wow. parts of Shaker Heights, right over the top of it. And these little old ladies in a garden club, you know, they got the whole community together and they ultimately succeeded in stopping uh, the Cuyahoga County plan to put in this Clark, Clark Freeway. So my house would be a Dunkin' Donuts if. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it was uh, that was ultimately came to pass, it has great history. I got involved with it because the the heights in general has about 300 acres of of wildness, as we call it. And I had been nominated to be president, and then I had the luxury of deciding who my you know next president would be. <laughs> and I had been in a meeting, and yeah, I was frankly unprepared, um, and. You know, Kimberly was in the same meeting and she had such command of the details. She had an awareness of what was going on in the community. And I didn't have either one of those things. I was like, wow, Kimberly would be a great compliment. I mean, together as a team, I think we could do re you know, really, really great things. 
And part of what I was trying to do as a president was professionalize, as we do at Evolution, professionalize the Nature Center at Shaker Lakes, make it run more like a business. And EOS was an important part of what we were trying to instill you know, in the disciplines there at the Nature Center at Shaker Lakes. And of course, through that process, Kimberly learned, you know, EOS. And then ultimately when she, I didn't think she was done being president of the Nature Center at Shaker Lakes. I think you're right. She started to transition into being an implementer and she's obviously been very, very successful. So, um, you know, so she watched it being implemented first. Huh. And then, you know, that she learned it that way as opposed to with the book. You mentioned earlier how kind of the, the brilliance was in the assembly or the the collection of things there that Gino Wickman right. had stated that. Right. I'm sure there were components of EOS that you're like, oh, I've naturally done this for quite some time. If I had to guess based on the information laid out, like the right person, right seat tool, this sounds like has been helpful in sort of your mindset and such. Yeah. Is there any other component of EOS that you to hang your head on as something that this was profound or, or this had uh, just major recurring benefit for you at Evolution or um, if, if somebody's not familiar with it, as many of our listeners aren't, uh, maybe it's something that helps them dip their toe in or like check out a tool or something. Is there some yeah, facet I of mean, it? I mean, EOS is a great system, right? I mean, as we discussed, Gino acknowledges in the book, he took pieces, parts from a lot of different, you know, ideas and put them together. And it's really fa fabulous. And I remain a huge uh, advocate for, for EOS. Um, the, and uh, there's, there's a lot, obviously, if I'm promoting it, there's more than one. Uh -huh. Right. But ones that stick out in my mind, you know, is this whole area around right people, right seats and putting together uh, an accountability chart. Um, you can't take a favored employee and wrap a job description around what their interests are, right? You have to look at the organization, create different boxes, and then put somebody in the box. And so much of what happens in, in these smaller businesses where no one's accountable except to the founder, you know, they do what they want to do. And then what happens is they dabble in accounting, they dabble in operations, they dabble in sales, and overall, you know, really ineffective. Right. The thing that I'd say is probably the most impactful is somebody that went back, get their MBA, and I thought I was all, you know, uh, <laughs> had, had, had it together, was the core values. Um, you know, I was like, I got my core values. You know, they're on the wall. Mm -hmm. See? They're, you know, they're great, right? But unless you live those, it is the organizational, I mean, it's the foundation to organize the people, right? And just like in life, you know, the people in your organization are key to being successful. And you could be a Democrat, you could be a Republican, you could be black, you could be white, you could be Asian. It doesn't matter. If everybody buys into the core values that are unique to your organization, then, you know, you're all pulling the oars in the same direction as they say, then you're going to be pretty hard to stop. Um, and so appreciating it's not nebulous. It's structure. I hire, I fire, I, you know, promote. You start to operationalize your core values. That's where the real value comes in. They're just not these aspirational things that you talk about. You, they are how you are making decisions. Yeah. I think makes it very powerful. And that was something that 
I thought I knew, but I clearly had no idea what I was talking about until EOS. Well, that seems to speak to an intentionality of putting core values together for evolution. And we've got some information in front of us uh, that has the core values for evolution on it. And, you know, it, it makes out the acronym AGREE, accountable <laughs> to our community, yeah. growth mindset, return on our energy, everyone's a leader and embrace change. Is there anything you could speak to of either either a specific example of putting those into action or operationalizing those or, a, you know, maybe a situation that others could learn from where you you did hire because of that or you, you know, recognized you disciplined or you, you know, eventually had to let go due to your values? You know, n not one of these is there an example as much as the process that we went through to get these was really, really valuable in terms of, um, you know, how we think about our business and, and how we wanted to work together and what skills were most important really, mm. you know, to be, you know, s successful. Right. And, um, I'm going to forget the name of it. Uh, it's the, 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 the group that Thomas Jefferson sent out into, uh, the Louisiana purchase, to explore, you know, the frontier before Lewis and Clark. Sure. And I look at what we do as a little bit of Lewis and Clark. You start out, you're well provisioned, you're going out into the unknown. <laughs> you have a map. It's so it's okay, you know, but you're improvising, you know, the whole way along and you're making a lot of mistakes, but they're not existential and you're kind of making your way mm -hmm. back. And ultimately, you know, you have huge success. But if you go down that analogy and back, it pulled out a lot of, you know, what we were thinking about that was under the surface, but we couldn't put words to it. So, you know, the word association, all that sort of stuff is important. The a movie, a situation, a phrase, a story, uh, these were all important elements to really get some deep thought into what was most important to us. And every one of these I love, and every one of these speaks to what you have to be good at at evolution you know, to be successful. I can't say one or the other is more or less important than, than the other. And it's, I just, and when we wrote it down, I was immediately go to an acronym to help me remember it. Right. And I was like, oh my gosh, it says agree. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not pulled up on your phone. They're the wallpaper on yes. your phone. Is that right? Yeah. So when you talk about living them, using them yeah. as a filter for decisions and all that, I mean, you've so Why do I do that? I do that because I need to hold myself accountable to that. Totally. Right? And I think deeply about what have I done to exhibit you know, those characters, not when times are great, but boy, am I having a really crummy week? You know, am I still maintaining that discipline? True North Star. Right. Is my leadership team maintaining that discipline. Those, that's why it's key. It's really helps you level set uh, uh -huh. about, you know, who you are and, and what you want the organization that you represent to, to, to look like to the outside world. I was with a group last week and it was the, middle managers and some individual contributors and we're talking about how to earn empowerment. And it's like, folks, if you can justify your decision based off of your core values and said it represents it this way because of this and tie it all, all together, even if it's not the way your leadership team would have made that decision, you're going to get another shot, right? Yeah. It's that, yeah. you know, thinking about it the right way. And to bring it full circle, we were at an event with Kimberly uh, a month or so ago where she was talking about retention and attraction of talent and 
one of the sentiments that stuck with me was, if you are certain and have clarity around core values, be unapologetic. Even if that means you're quirky and weird and, you know, these aren't aspirationals, they're truly you, that if you're unapologetic and you market those out as this is who we are, you will attract the right people, you will repel the wrong people. Right. It is a magnetic thing. Right. Right. And that really stuck with me. This has been great. I, I don't want to close it yet, but it, we got to just a couple more things in, in the next few minutes. And I want to make sure for those who maybe haven't considered, uh, you know, private equity or, or an outside party to, to help them grow their business or to maybe be a part of succession planning for them that they've always considered it just being, you know, kind of second or third gen handoff in a family. What's, what can you share with the founder or a leadership team uh, where maybe this sparked some curiosity? Maybe there was some uh, conversation that resonated with them, but uh, what would you say to somebody that, you know, is probably ripe for some partnership uh, with Evolution Capital Partners if it's not something they've even considered in the past? So you start out with students and young people and exploring private equity. And what I always tell young students that say, I read 18 accounting books last month and 40 finance books and whatever, I'm like, go volunteer. But the skill set that is most important in what we do is people. Accounting and finance is the table stake. You have to know that, right? But you really have to know you're evaluating people. And, and most importantly is you're trying to persuade them that your idea is the right idea. So if you think about what we do, I fundraise. I go to you and I say, hey, how about you give me money for 10 years? Let's be partners. Mm -hmm. And I go to you, hey, I know you've owned your business for 25 years, but why don't you give me the keys? And yeah, I'll kind of take it from here. Yeah. Those are tough arguments. Right. Right. So you have to understand your value prop proposition. You have to understand the people that you're dealing with. And if you think about a volunteer situation, nobody has to pay attention to you. Right. You have no authority over them. Only way to succeed is to persuade people that your ideas, you know, are the best ideas. And so I think that that is the best way you know, to train. Uh in developing yourself, whether it's private equity or anything, is volunteer. These people aren't from your background. They're there for the same reason, hopefully, that you are. And so leverage that just like your core values to persuade people to to that your idea is the, the right, you know, idea. As far as everybody else is concerned, I say that private equity is transformational. You don't just take on private equity to take on private equity. There's got to be a reason to do it. You're going from point A to point B. I want to retire. Mm -hmm. I want to buy a competitor. The law has changed and we have this great new initiative. We've come up with this great new idea. Let's We're going to change direction, but can't do that for free. Because once you enter into the private equity arena, you never go back. I mean... If you are a family-owned business and you want your son or daughter to own that business in the future, don't do private equity unless that is the stated purpose that, okay, you know, we're going to, and there are, the, those options are available. If things go well, 
you're selling to a larger private equity fund, you're selling to a strategic buyer, which is you know a company that's in the industry or, or wants to be in, in your industry. Um, so to me, what makes private equity so great is that it is transformational. You're doing something, and that gets back to Lewis and Clark, that you're doing something, right. you're on a journey, and there is a defined end to our relationship, and this is kind of what it looks like. Yeah. Right. I'm sure there's uncharted things that happen, you know, in a lot of those situations too, like a Lewis and Clark. Always. I'm not sure any deal has ever ended up the way I thought. Sometimes (laughs) a lot better and sometimes horrible, but it never ends up. So the best management teams are the ones that pivot, right? They're getting the information they need at the time where they have to make a decision and they're reacting the right way because they've thought about it deeply and they know what they want to do. Yeah. Right. It never happens. And that's, you know, frankly, what kids need to learn today is like, you're going to go up and down, up and down a thousand times a week, right? It's not going to be, you know, this wonderful 45 degree, you know, line straight up mm. all the time. And you just got to fight your way through that and just have conviction about who you are. I've worked at my skills. I know I'm good at this. I've gotten feedback from people that I can, you know, continue on and you know, don't be afraid of failure, you know? So if a founder knows they need to make some sort of change or the, maybe they're running into a ceiling that they just haven't figured out a way around or they, they're like, I, you know what, I know I need to do something or I know this organization needs some sort of transformation, that would be a situation when you know they would want to get in touch with somebody like you. Yeah, I mean, every fund has a different spin or different uh, skill sets. Mm-hmm. And so I would definitely encourage people to look at, you know, who they're partnering with because there's a thousand different you know, flavors of, of, of private equity. They get categorized and leveraged buyout and growth equity and all this other sort of right. stuff. Um, but, you know, I say that father time's undefeated, right? So if you're like 70 years old, you better start thinking about, you know, a transition plan because you don't want to think about it when you're on your way to the hospital with a heart attack. No doubt. Right. You know, that's not the way to, to handle that situation. Um, and so uh, it really depends on what you want to do and what the strategy is. It's going to, or the industry is really going to be what appeals to, to whoever the audience is. But, you know, it's the internet's obviously the internet. And so it's easy to research this stuff and really get a handle on who you think the right match is for you. And frankly, these private equity funds are hungry for deals. There's a trillion dollars of overhang of uninvested but committed capital looking for an investment, wow. right? It's a, it's a trillion three or something like that. When I got it doing this at, at Evolution, it's 300 million. It's, it's, oh, it's, it's mainstream now. Yeah. And there's just not enough product, as you say, out there, companies to invest in. So if somebody says, hey, I'm going to call this private equity fund and you know they're going to take your call, hmm. right? So it looks like a lot of the clients that you've worked with East of the Rockies, right? Correct. Industry agnostic. We're, so we're business services. We really like regulated industries. We have done stuff on the West Coast, but I'm just tired of flying that far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Generally, I, I don't can blame get to Denver pretty easily and Houston and Minneapolis and Chicago. And then obviously everywhere East. So honestly... Zoom has made it easier to think about more remote locations, you know, east of the Rockies. But 
we do look at travel okay. you know, as part of uh, you know an unstated consideration about whether we pursue something or not. You know, one to three million of, of EBITDA or operating profit is is important. Uh, diversified customer base, uh, high margin, like at least a forty percent gross profit margin. To me, that's a direct expression of what your customers think about the product or service yep. that you're delivering. Our core competency though is professionalization. I mean, anybody could benefit from you know being a partner with with us because we just have been there, done that, and leveled up so many businesses over time. I'll ask one more thing about that because I, I think that that that's huge, right? I, I can understand why that would be the core competency. I'm sure that others in the private equity space would say something similar, right? It, it is our experience, sure. the professional Absolutely. nature of it. But what about your uniques? So if we've continued, somebody listening to this has continued to self-select and narrow down further. And the more that we get into it, like, all right, maybe this is something I should consider. If they're now at that stage of considering picking up the phone and talking to a couple of people, I imagine Evolution Capital Partners has a couple things yep. as EOS would, would yep. teach us. I got to, my three uniques. My three uniques. You want to hear them? You want to share them? <laughs> yeah. So the first is our market. I mean, I got into this industry because, you know, the professional investment community is overlooks this market. Yeah. These smaller companies that don't have the infrastructure or they're not doing the things that make it user-friendly for that larger private equity fund. Like larger private equity funds want to make sure that your numbers are right, that you have a HR program, that you've got a 401k, that you have a CRM system. They want to work on governance, M&A, capital structure, those kinds of things. Not taking anything away from them, they're trying to buy businesses that are already killing it, right? right? So they're looking for something that they can grab, you know, and with right away. The second is our structure. Our uh, uh, option plan is twice as big as you're going to find in the rest of the market. Uh, we are willing to give away more to the successful owners. And it's double the size also because we tend to bring in the missing pieces in the accountability chart to level up a team. Sure. So that is, and then last is, Evolution Pro, which is our methodology. You know, we've got it on LMS so people can get online and 24-7 and access to the tools and the, the philosophy that they need to understand to be successful. So rather than waiting for me to spill it out to you on a phone call, you can get online three in the morning and say, hey, really thinking about this, how would Evolution do it? So those are three uniques. Love it. Where some somebody wants to learn more, where do they go? What's the first step? What do you recommend they explore or look into next? Yeah, evolutioncapitalpartners.com is obviously we try to push everybody to the website. And we also have a pretty, I think we have like almost 3,500, 3,600, 3,700 followers on LinkedIn. So we actively post on, on LinkedIn. We used to do other platforms, but really focused in on you know, and I think that we're pretty accessible. You know, we're advocates for small business owners. We want to see everybody succeed. We don't want to be the last no, so it's not good for us. We're going to try to refer you on to the next group. And I'll say Cleveland has the largest private equity community between New York and China. No kidding. And it's it's a group of people I'm really proud to affiliate with. They're all pros. It's not something 
maybe Clevelanders generally aware of. This is people should be as they have done national reputations, international reputations. A lot of great work, highly ethical. This may be the first interview where I didn't specifically ask about storms you've charged into. However, I think it's because it sounds like most of most of your career, a lot of what you do yeah. are storms. It's the yeah. uncomfortable things. Yeah. Uh, Lewis and Clark right. lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. I uh, thank you. Jeff. Oh, thank I you. Thanks, I, I enjoy talking about our business and talking to people that are in the entrepreneurial world like you guys are. I go into every situation hoping and expecting I'm going to learn something and I have today. So thank you for having me. Same. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in as well. Take a look down in the description for uh, the different resources and things that Jeff laid out today. Uh, we just really appreciate being here. I, I took something valuable from this. I hope that me as well. you did as well. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time.